This is a big week in world weather science as the representatives of 190 nations converged on Poznan, Poland for the United Nations Climate Change Conference. We'll speak to a representative of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on what we may expect to come out of this conference on climate change and science. And we visit the Jet Streaming Bookshelf to speak to Kurt Brown. His new book, So Terrible a Storm, tells the story of the 1905 Lake Superior storm that wiped out 31 ships. We're on the move from the Great Lakes to Geneva, Switzerland, and from St. Paul to Poznan, Poland. It's Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Hello, weather fans. I'm Stephen John. Paul Hutner will be back next week, but I'm joined in studio by University of Minnesota meteorologist and climatologist Dr. Mark Seeley and NPR's own meteorologist Craig Edwards. Welcome back, team. Good to be with you, Stephen. Always nice to have a new weather geek join the club. <laughs> so the question we have to ask, as uh, Minnesota has been dealing with some very frigid temperatures this week, is, is it cold enough for you? My it's goodness. cold enough for me. We, cold yeah. enough for me. <laughs> We've certainly had uh, our share here in the Western Great Lakes, uh, some some uh, very, very cold weather. And snow dispersed across the landscape, Craig, uh, kind of an unusual pattern. Yeah, they're getting uh, missed with the snow in the western portion of the state from Alexandria to St. Cloud, but the, their time will come soon. Hey, Mark, I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the Climate Prediction Center updating their forecast on November 30th that a uh, little bit of a swing toward a below normal temperatures for the month of December. What do you think of that? Yeah, very emphatic, in fact. Not not marginal, but pretty pretty pronounced uh, that we are going to see a colder than normal uh, December. I suspect that they see that uh, something's going on with the uh, classic Arctic oscillation, that, you know, the polar latitude uh, pressure pattern that's going to tend to keep a lot of uh, cold Canadian air over the western Great Lakes. Is that what you see? Yeah, that northwesterly flow that's set up after the first week of November when we enjoyed temperatures close to 70 on Election Day, it's pretty much uh, been marked, that northwesterly flow set up, but just a little push of milder air. And I think those mild spells are uh, going to be few and far between as we head into December. So perhaps more snow on the way as well as uh, some very chilly temperatures, I think, for the, at least for the first two weeks of December. Stephen, you might take note of this too, you know, with the absence of snow cover in parts of the state, notably western Minnesota that Craig referred to, mm-hmm. we're starting to see a region-wide a deeper penetration of frost into the ground with these cold temperatures. That is, the frozen layer of soil is getting deeper and mm-hmm. deeper. It'd be nice to have a little snow cover on that to sort of uh, dampen that off a little bit so we don't see real deep frost this winter. On the flip side, though, are the lakes uh, freezing earlier? It's really too early to be out uh, on most lakes in Minnesota. The ice is, is rather thin. But I agree. I think we still have a long ways to go before we have safe lake ice. Uh, don't you agree, Craig? Well, I appreciate the, some of the news reports that are showing people taking a little bit of a risk out there in the lakes. But I, I think, Mark, as we get uh, maybe in the next week or so, we'll have uh, better ice conditions, particularly in the Northland. So uh, just be patient. There will be uh, time enough for ice fishing here in Minnesota. Indeed. In weather headlines this week, representatives of 190 nations are in Poznan, Poland, through the end of next week for the United Nations Climate Change Conference. The 8,000 delegates 
will review progress in a two-year push to work out a sweeping new U.N. climate treaty by the end of 2009. So far, many countries have promised to fight global warming despite fears of deep financial recession around the world, but few have come up with deep cuts in emissions that the U.N.'s climate panel says are needed to avoid the worst of heat waves, droughts, and rising seas. The current climate pact, the Kyoto Protocol, expires in 2012, and countries are scrambling to negotiate a follow-up deal that many hope will include the United States and commit developing nations like China and India to cut greenhouse gases. Dr. Renata Christ is the secretary of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in Geneva, Switzerland, and she joins us from the UN conference in Poznan to tell us what the outcome might mean for future climate change developments. Dr. Christ, welcome to Jetstreaming. Thank you very much. What kind of progress are you seeing toward the goal of a new climate treaty? There in Poznan. Well, you see, IPCC is uh, a scientific body, and we are here uh, as observers, and we are here to provide in regular intervals the conference of the parties here with scientific technical advice. So we are not directly involved in the negotiations, and uh, this is why I'm probably the wrong person to ask this kind of question. And also, things have just been started, uh, and uh, things get moving. So. Uh, even probably for somebody who is involved in negotiations, it's too premature to uh, offer any judgment. Dr. Kreist, uh, this is Mark Seeley from the University of Minnesota. Um, I, wa- I wanted to ask, though, in terms of serving the agenda for the meeting this week, uh, is there relatively more concentration or discussion concerning uh, technology deployment be it technology from the standpoint of mitigating uh, climate change or adapting to climate change? Is is that part of the agenda this week? Well, certainly uh, technological options for mitigating and uh, adapting to climate change is is very important, and that is certainly uh, one of the topics which is being discussed here, and there's even a huge fear uh, where we can uh, have uh, new technologies environmental technologies on display, but uh, uh, the, the negotiations here are more uh, on the, for a, a political way forward uh, on the post-Kyoto agreement. So in detail, technological discussions, are, um, at least from my point of view, I haven't seen it uh, inside the negotiations. Certainly in the side events and in uh, technical briefings, that's uh, a big, big topic. Yeah, this this is Craig Edwards, and I wanted to ask you along the same lines. Are you seeing more research being directed then to the southern hemisphere for, for monitoring and assessing the climate changes that are occurring in the southern hemisphere? Yeah, well, in fact, uh, the, the fourth IPCC assessment report, one of the findings was that there are gaps in knowledge, gaps in observation in the southern hemisphere, and that is certainly one of the priorities for the future research but also observation to to better understand what is happening now, what kind of trends are there, and then build on that knowledge uh, uh, climate models which uh, give us a much better understanding in regional climate scenarios of what is happening at the local, at the regional level, or what is projected to happen at the local and regional level. That's certainly one of the priorities from our point of view. Of the uh, 2007 IPCC assessment chapters that were released, uh, 
I noted a particular emphasis on the research area of water vapor feedback and its importance to understanding the uh, the uh, Earth climate system, and uh, almost, if you will, a, a an asking for the research community to investigate water v- vapor feedback to a greater extent. Also, it appeared as though the panel was emphasizing that we ought to take a very close look at the impacts of conservation practices. Are these two areas uh, still uh, on the forefront in terms of the political discussions going on there or what might be emphasized in the coming years? Well, uh, we have to really distinguish between uh, research gaps and gaps in knowledge, which the IPCC has identified in the R4 and the political agenda, because that's uh, sometimes on two different tracks, but certainly what you have mentioned were two of the issues which were identified as gaps in knowledge and aerosol and cloud feedback and uh, water vapor, the role of that uh, for the modeling of uh, the future climate and for understanding how the climate uh, and feedbacks uh, are operating. Uh, That is certainly a a topic. Also, the link uh, uh, between uh, climate change mitigation, climate change adaptation, and conservation of biodiversity is a topic which uh, has been raised uh, frequently and also yesterday uh, in one of the negotiations uh, that uh, there has to be mutual reinforcing of practices, and certainly we are looking into those interlinkages also. But IPCC always depends on the research that is available, because we are assessing research which uh, appears in the peer-reviewed published literature. All right. Dr. Uh, Renata Christ, what is the next step in the, progress, in the process now with the uh, discussions going on in, in Poznan? Poznan, uh, uh, they will uh, uh, try to come to uh, clear conclusions about uh, how to uh, structure the next uh, phase in the road towards Copenhagen. And uh, uh, as I said, every, uh, the, the negotiations have just started, and uh, uh, I'm not part of the, uh, not a party, so I'm not directly involved in the negotiations, and certainly I'm not the best person to ask that question. Uh, it, Copenhagen, explain exactly what uh, is that uh, date uh, for uh, that meeting? Uh, it will be December next year, and it's the next conference of the parties, and it's the previous conference of the parties in Bali. Uh, uh, the Bali roadmap or Bali action plan was agreed where they said uh, that uh, in Copenhagen uh, an, an agreement should be reached on the post-Kyoto regime, on the second commitment period, and also on the shared vision on the further development of the convention. And we are here in Poznan. It's kind of halfway between Bali and uh, Copenhagen, and uh, that's the situation here. Dr. Renata Christ is the secretary of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in Geneva, Switzerland. She joined us from the UN conference going on in Poznan, Poland. You've probably heard about the storm on Lake Superior that sunk the Edmund Fitzgerald. On November 27th, just over 100 years ago, a lesser-known storm on the Great Lakes 
caused one of the most dramatic shipping disasters in the nation's history. On a fall night in 1905, dozens of ships were on Lake Superior, making the season's last run when the fierce storm struck. The stories from that night are harrowing, stories of crew members freezing to death and others who survived by dancing around bathtubs set ablaze. Kurt Brown tells those stories in a new book, So Terrible a Storm, A Tale of Fury, on Lake Superior. Brown is a reporter at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. He told Minnesota Public Radio's Kathy Werzer the story first caught his attention when he was on vacation up north. About six years ago, I had my family up at Split Rock Lighthouse, a popular icon, of course, on the North Shore. And I don't know if it was the tour guide or a little pamphlet, but the little seed was planted that somebody said that this lighthouse was built and Congress appropriated $75,000 to build this lighthouse because of the great storm of 1905. So curiosity hit me and I said, what storm? And that turned into an obsession and that blossomed into a book. Well, let's talk about that storm. It, uh, of course, it was an amazing storm, but I'm wondering, is there any way to rate how fierce that one was versus the one that took down the Edmund Fitzgerald? Well, there's a guy who wrote a book in the 1940s, of course, which would be before the Edmund Fitzgerald. And uh, and, and he quoted the old-timers back then who said that compared to all the other storms, this was the worst in terms of three days of constant wind, snow. And the temperature, I think, went from 30 to like 10 below in a, in a matter of like three hours. A lot so of snow. Everybody, of course, knows the Edmund Fitzgerald because it happened only 33 years ago. And Gordon Lightfoot made it a pop culture, you know, kind of song in the back of all of our head. But this storm, according to the old-timers in the 40s, of course, no one remembers it anymore. They rank this as the as the worst blow, especially on that part of the Minnesota part of Lake Superior, Duluth and the North Shore, and up to where Split Rock Lighthouse was built. Well, let's set the scene because, of course, this is at the end of the shipping season in November of, of 1905, and there already had been a number of shipwrecks that year, but this one was was big, and you had a lot of ships on the lake trying to get one last load in or out of the Twin Ports. Well, there had just been a bad storm the weekend before. This was Thanksgiving week, and, and the belief at that time, meteorology was more advanced kind of than I thought when I got into this project, but still the captains in their gut didn't really believe the weatherman, they, the forecaster up in Duluth. So they they were of the belief that when there's a big storm, that's going to be followed by a lull, that you'll get a few calm days and that they could make one more run of ore and barley and wood and whatever else they were hauling across down to Pittsburgh and Cleveland, get get some money in their wallets for the you know the three month winter off season, but you know to keep their families warm. So they took one last run, but in a one two punch kind of way, this storm hit right after the other storm, and that's what caught a lot of these captains out on the lake. Like you said, about thirty ships were on the lake when the storm hit. Let's take a, a, a look at a couple of those uh, ships in particular. Let's start with the Madeira, which of course for folks who've driven on sixty one, old you know, current sixty one, you're going to notice a ship's anchor in this kind of dilapidated, run-down, used to be a trading post. That's off the Madeira. She sank pretty close to Split Rock Lighthouse in that area. Yeah, the Madeira was a barge. It was common in those days that a big ore ship would then tow behind it a, a barge full of the same stuff, the iron ore, and it was just kind of towing that one along. Well, the two split apart. One of them, one of them landed safely on the beach, the Edinburgh, and the Madeira kept smashing into the what is Gold Rock, which is just right adjacent to where Split Rock now stands. And the story behind that one, there was a seaman named Fred Benson, a Scandinavian seaman who, who climbed up the cliff with a rope in his hand. Imagine the waves smashing his back. He crawled up kind of like a spider, getting lashed by these waves that, you know, I'm sure paralyzed him between every wave. But he made it to the top of Gold Rock Cliff, threw the rock down with a stone on the end, and saved everybody 
aboard the barge. There were nine in the crew. One guy didn't make it. A guy named James Morrow tried his own way. He tried climbing the mast and jumping for it and realized that wasn't going to work and got washed ashore, washed away. And so uh, Benson saved all but one member of that, that barge crew. If you see Gold Rock, of course, it's a fairly sheer cliff. And climbing up that would have been just, I can't imagine that. Well, and especially the move that he made, the instinct to jump. You know, here you are jumping off a boat in the middle of a storm. And if that wasn't enough, then every four or five seconds, a huge wave is smashing him in the back with freezing water. That's the Madeira. Is it the Matafa? Is that the pronunciation? That's how you pronounce it. The Matafa was is really the central uh, kind of character, if you will, of my book. And and this boat was uh, heading out of Duluth when the storm hit and tried to circle back and make it into Duluth. It basically kind of T-boned the piers there that stick out from Duluth Harbor. And um, the whole town of Duluth, 10,000 people they estimated, lined the beaches and built bonfires and kind of watched either as gawkers or as good Samaritans trying to help help them find, the, you know, the boats find their way into the harbor. The crew members in the back, you know, knew they were in trouble. Three of them made the run to the front while everybody watched gasping. This was only 700 feet off the Duluth beach, which just amazes me. Um, not to give the book away, but the guys in front were able to survive through the night um, by keeping each other awake, building a fire in a bathtub. The guys in the back, I'll just uh, suffice it to say, didn't fare as well. There are still remnants around Lake Superior of that storm, 1905. I mentioned the Madeira's anchor, the Matafa. Are there any remnants of her on the bottom at all? Well, the Matafa was actually, and a lot of these boats were actually put back together, patched up, and sent back out and, you know, had another 40 years of service. There is in Canal Park down in Duluth. I was there a few weeks ago, and there is a museum that, that has a few of the artifacts, including a, an old uh, uh, oar from one of the lifeboats of the Matafa and an old axe from the Matafa. You know, one of the boats I write about, the Ira Owen, which sank with everybody on board. It was carrying a load of barley. Uh, off by the Apostle Island, sank with everybody, like I said. That boat's never been found, so it's one of the thousands of shipwrecks that litter the bottom of the Great Lakes. The stories in the book of these various vessels that went down, uh, just amazing. Of course, what came of that storm was Split Rock Lighthouse, which well, is kind of There were also some more subtle changes in the shipping industry, too. You know, the, the Matafa, for one, was just had this huge deck. It's a 470-foot boat, and if you were out on the deck, you were in trouble. After this, the the ships that were coming out of the yards, the new ships, which were bigger, 500, 600 feet, they all had under-deck passages, so nobody would be caught out on the deck. They also changed rules, so they had to have a line from the the front of the boat to the back of the boat in case you were out there that you wouldn't get washed away. So it, it really did change a lot of... A lot of things subtly, and of course, the the you know the icon and the lasting memorial is the Split Rock Lighthouse. Well, Kurt, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Kathy. That's Kurt Brown with Minnesota Public Radio's Kathy Werzer. Kurt is the author of a new book, "So Terrible a Storm: A Tale of Fury on Lake Superior." It tells the story of a fierce storm that struck the Great Lakes in November 1905. Kurt Brown is a general assignment reporter at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Website of the Week. Mark nominates the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change site for Website of the Week. Very timely, Stephen, uh, in the context of what's going on uh, in Poland this week with the various uh, discussions and negotiations. This this website is uh, simply found by uh, unfccc.int. 
uh, or you can simply Google for United Nations Framework Convention. Either way will get you there. It's loaded with reports uh, in, uh, from the climate scientists that are contributing, um, discussion, uh, discussions of um, the pertinent issues going on, including uh, adaptation strategies, mitigation strategies, uh, new research findings, I might add, in terms of both hemispheres, northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere. So it's a rich resource for those who want to delve into climate change more deeply. All right. Thank you for digging that up, Mark. A good place to keep up with what is going on. Our listener feedback this week. We have two this week. The first comes from Mike in Rosemount, Minnesota, who says, I really enjoy this podcast and appreciate the work everyone puts into producing the show each week. This is going to be my ninth winter here in the Twin Cities, and I don't recall seeing the geese heading south so late in the season before. Is there a correlation between the migration of geese and the type of winter weather we will experience? My goodness. Well, to some degree, I think the uh, onset of the first uh, polar frontal systems in the fall season, Stephen, these tend to be triggering mechanisms for the birds to start heading south. Uh, to some degree, I would guess there's a correlation in that the uh, onset of these in many recent falls has been somewhat delayed. You know, we've had prolonged fall season. You might say in some of the more recent falls, we've had real extended Indian summer. So there might be some correlation with that, but I think it's the storm systems themselves and the cold polar fronts that migrate down that do, uh, if you will, motivate the geese mm-hmm. to get to get their act in gear and get moving south. So as the lake ice is closing in around them, uh, they have the bird brain that uh, maybe can't tell them that <laughs> it's time to get the heck out of Minnesota? Well, uh, that and probably actually a, a, a strong sense of these uh, these storm systems themselves. You know, when the when the wind shifts around, starts coming out of the north northwest, dew points fall, temperature falls, etc. They, I think, they sense it's time to head south. They start to get the message. Yeah. All right. Secondly, our friend Knut from Highview, West Virginia, wrote in to remind all weather watchers that December 4th is the Skywarn Amateur Radio Connection and a Celebration. And you can learn more about it by going to hamradio.noaa.gov. Craig Edwards, do you know anything about this? Oh, yeah. It's uh, been a tradition now about the first week in December, the Saturday night, that the National Weather Service across the country gathers these uh, ham radio operators to to network with each other and gain some familiarity with what the National Weather Service does. So it's a great celebration of the unique and very uh, welcome relationship the National Weather Service has with the ham radio operators and keeps them in the loop throughout the season. We particularly rely on them, of course, in the severe weather season, but a very worthwhile effort to uh, celebrate the uh, the real importance they have to the severe weather program across the nation. And it is uh, worthwhile to keep in mind that uh, we're at that time of year where severe weather can, uh, can be a life-and-death situation real quickly, so uh, keep it in mind. Don't forget, you can always drop us a line for a question or comment by way of the Jet Streaming webpage at npr.org. That's it for Jet Streaming this week. For Mark, Craig, Paul, producers Jim Bickle, and P. Ray Rudolph, and Ace Sound Guy Scooter Hibzinski, I'm Stephen John. And remember to keep an ear here to Jet Streaming and your weather eye on the sky. 